So the hardest part about writing a sermon is um, when you're driving to church on the way to give it. The laptop doesn't stay in your lap as you're, dri- as you're driving, you know what I mean? So anyways, if I would have done it beforehand, I probably would have been a little better off. But So Chris asked me to speak about culture, and I was like, any, anything else? Like, hey, you want to give me any more direction than that? Uh, so I got a lot of ground to cover, right? So my goal here tonight is to kind of break down what I see as our past, our present, and our future in terms of who we are, right? That's a lot of ground to cover, but I am super confident that I can get this done in less than four hours if I hurry. So here's what we got, right? All right, so I haven't done this yet, so give me a... Okay. I'm going to stay up here because this tablet's kind of heavy, so sorry about being a little high churchy here at the pulpit. So culture is the characteristic features of everyday existence shared by people in a place or time. Or another way to put it, it's the set of shared attitudes, values, goals, and practices that characterizes an institution or organization. All right. So this is, this is uh, per my wife's recommendation, a define the terms sort of... Uh, situation here, right? So this is what we're talking about. So we are a church, a body, in the here and now, and we have this makeup of attitudes, goals, visions, and things. Um, and we are, we have a culture as it is, right? We've been around for a little bit, but we're, we're also still in the infancy stage where we're kind of developing a culture. So like as we get to know each other, as we're trying to figure out how to do this, and we're in this like visionary era of about to, about to be going to Wellsville, we're kind of like building who we are, which means we're kind of building our, our culture, and we haven't been that uh, up front or obvious about it or put it in those terms yet. So this is this is what this is. Now we haven't run it by the doctrine board, so hopefully this is a, <laughs> hopefully this is a, an orthodox um, sermon here. But but here we go. So this is us looking to understand who we are together and what it is that we want to become together. This is how this is how I put it. So cultural heritage is is the first part. So this is the past part that we're talking about. So the cultural heritage is. The legacy of physical artifacts and intangible attributes of a group or society that is inherited from past generations. So we have the tangible parts, works of art, books, buildings, artifacts, right? All the stuff you see on stage, the building we're about to have, and then you have the intangible things like our folklore, which could just be like the stories that we have as we continue to work as a community, right? The things that we remember, the traditions that we have, like peace be with you and also with you, and the knowledge and things like that. So that is kind of our cultural heritage for us in particular, Um, But it's also like the history of a larger culture. So if you think in terms of us as Americans, we're a whole lot different than we were 400 years ago, but there's a heritage that kind of has some cohesion to it, but it it evolves, right? So history or heritage is the attempt to kind of make sense of or put order to things that happen to people over time, right? Pretty simple. And it's it's not necessarily just good things or bad. That would be like propaganda or, or you know, principles that you strive for or something like that. Um, it's going to be a mixed bag because we're complicated people. So if you think in terms of America, like we have these brilliant political theories that we start to put together in the Constitution and we have uh, like this history of, of progress and development, but we also started by like taking land, breaking treaties, enslaving people, right? So as we evolve and we kind of, ha- we, we have to reckon with our past, the good and the bad. Same thing in the church, right? Like we had the lives of the saints, this, uh, these fundamental principles of love and nonviolence, but we also have things like the Crusades and the, and the Spanish Inquisition, right? That's part of our history. You can tell when you look in your own family, like, the past that you've come from, right? And the, and the family that you have. It's a mixed bag. So part of it is, like, is truth and reconciliation to, to deal with your own heritage, right? And be like, 
Well, what we want to do is not the things that we thought were awful. We want to do the things that we thought were good. So when we look back at the lives of the saints and we're like, dude, that's worth keeping going. Even though it was 2,000 years ago, this stuff, not so good. We'll reckon with it, but we're going to move forward. So that's kind of what I, what I think of when, when I think of our cultural heritage, is kind of putting it all out there, learning from both sides, good and bad and otherwise. <clears throat> hmm so a trick is to figure out where we are now and how we got here. And I mean us as this particular group of people, as this, as this body. We've got a heritage. We've got lineage. We've actually got multiple heritages and lineages. Some people were raised Catholic. Some people weren't raised in church at all. Right? We have, if we go back in our family tree or if anybody's doing the 23andMe stuff, you kind of figure out like this ethnic heritage. Maybe it makes a difference. Maybe it doesn't. But when it all comes together here, it creates the dynamic that is Open Table Community Church. That All those heritages come together. And specifically what we're talking about is the religious heritage that we have and the religious heritage that we're kind of, we're, we're building. And if it's, I think it's important for us to know how we got here so we can get an idea of where we're shooting for. Especially if we're referring to a text that we think is authoritative but really has nothing to do with us, right? Thousands of years old from a totally different people, from a totally different part of the world that if we went back in time, we'd have no idea what they were saying. We'd probably have no idea what these customs are, right? But somehow we think, it has authority in our lives. And we're probably right to think that, but in order for us to, to, to make sense to us, we have to figure out how we fit into that story. And, and it's a back and forth because as we figure out how we fit into that story, we also see how that story impacts us and, and where we're heading, right? So this is, this is a great uh, back and forth. It gives us an idea to, it informs us and we don't lose track of the larger story. Otherwise, we'll get stuck in whatever the current trending topics are in, on Facebook or in the news and we'll just say our identity is wrapped up in what we think about this particular thing happening right now and it'll just be, we'll be the 24-hour news cycle of churchiness and that sounds terrible, right? It sounds absolutely terrible. So here's how I, ought to, I, I think we should think of ourselves. Locating ourselves in the big picture. Open Table Community Church is a particular community expressing faith within a large history and geography of faith occurring somewhere between the resurrection of Christ and the end of the world, right? Try to hone it in a little bit. So it's good for us to try to see really how we fit into this big picture. We don't have to get all the nuances and stuff. We don't have to get into the minute history of like 16th century scholasticism or anything. We don't have to get there yet. We just have to get the main points of the, the narrative of the Ark of God. What is it that God has been doing from the beginning how do we fit into it? And if we don't lose sight of that, it's going to be easier for us to uh, take the long view so we don't get so wrapped up in, in the tiny stuff, right? So, <clears throat> this is obviously a very big, broad, drinking from a fire hose sort of subject, but Chris told me to preach on culture. <laughs> so, so here we go. So what I want to do is look at the big, broad history to see what God has done and see where we fit in and uh, we'll just kind of go from there. So, oh, sorry, that's so small. Step one, God creates the world, right? Familiar with that part. Then we have what we call the introduction to sin, the fall of humanity, right? Genesis 3. At some point, God decides to pick a people, right? He, he chooses Israel. He's like, okay, so now I've got all these people. Y'all are it. And so now, so we've got this book, Right? After that, you know, they go through the wilderness, whatever, they have the mountaintop experience. Here is God speaking to a people that he chose and saying, if you all want to be my people, you have to keep my commands. And here they are. So it's the original, like, red letter, if you will, right? 
Here's the law. Tablets, right? Write them down. Some time passes. Now we have the incarnation of the Messiah of those people. It had been foretold and all these things. And here comes this, this, uh, the, this Messiah. And to us, it is the pivotal point, right? The, that's why the calendar is BCAD. This is God breaking into history. And so we have this fundamental point to which we refer. So we already kind of know that history is important because God's breaking into it. So the people that are following this Messiah of this Jewish people, this tiny little people and somewhere on the other side of the world, we have the Acts of the Apostles. So we see the people that followed him that time and time again, like we would be any different, didn't quite get what he was saying, but we're like, but he's on to something. He must be on to something. And he's crucified, resurrects. They received the Holy Spirit. You know, we went through this, uh, the Acts study. And now they're like, oh, they, got, you know, they start spreading the gospel. And then all of a sudden they're like, all these Gentiles are getting this. Like, how does this even work? I thought this was the Messiah of Israel. How are all these Gentiles getting in there? Right? Good news for us, I would say. If there's a good news, it's like we were a, a people without a God, without hope in this world. Now this Messiah of a tiny little nation somehow has given us access to the God who created the world. That's pretty good news. But what happened between, like, after, after that? There's some, like, history happened, like, Thousands of years pass, I'm sure. Some stuff happens, some wars, and blah, blah, blah. And then Open Table Community Church is founded in Kansas, right? Right, so it's 21st century. So we had a couple thousand years in between the life, death, resurrection, the Acts of the Apostles, and now. And then I'm sure some more history will happen, and then there's going to be the final judges in the end of the world, right? And so we're at step eight, surrounded by a bunch of non-biblical history and we're trying to figure out how we fit in between step six and the end of the world. That's where we're trying to locate ourselves, right? And I think the thing is, is we don't necessarily have a great sort of genealogical understanding of, of who we are as a people in terms of that heritage, as opposed to like the Jews have a huge advantage, right? Even at the time of Jesus, how does the first part of the first book of the New Testament start? With a genealogy. But they're like, okay, here's the Messiah, and let me tell you a little bit, let's start at the very first person and we'll run you all the way through every single generation to get to this Messiah. Like, they, not only do they have a great sense of history, their history is like codified as canon, right? They can look back, they know who they are. They know who they are. And our, our history, I say, is bound up in that, right? Because it's our Messiah, the Messiah of the Jews, right? So this is super, super important. So what I take from that is like a cultural heritage goes. So as I'm talking about the past, I would say our goal should be to lean in to discover how we fit into this heritage of faith, the larger heritage of faith, starting with the promise of Abraham, right? The eternal covenant with Israel, the community of believers all the way through history to where we are now, all the way to the end, end times where you basically have the, the new Jerusalem in, in Revelation where it all you know, comes to fruition. So this is obviously... Even this is way too big of a task for a single sermon, especially this one. But I want to say this is a pillar, I think. It would behoove us to, to, to constantly dig in over time, individual studies or as a community, to find out who we are in relation to the saints and God's overall plan. Because I think, and, and one of the reasons I think this is really important that kind of struck me was, if we just be like, if we stick to the... Um, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that's it, that's pretty fundamental. But if that's all you have, you're going to be like on a Christian island, right? And if all these communities of faith are kind of like, all right, we believe in Jesus, whatever that means, and they all do their own thing of what they think is right, 
everybody's just going to be doing what they think is right in their own eyes. Which that phrase sounds familiar, right? That's like the times of Noah. Things were not doing so well. So even though you might not be doing evil, you'd kind of be relativizing like the, the plan of God, the narrative arc of God, because you're just like, well, we think this is right. Don't go to the theater. Or, you know, all the, you come up with all these different things that you think this is fundamental to what it means to be Christian because you're not looking at the, hey, here's like the arc of God. How do I fit into this? And the nice thing is we have the opportunity to grasp this because the text is present to us. Like one thing we take advantage of, I'm sh- or we, we uh, um, take for granted, I probably mentioned it before, was like the text is present everywhere. I mean, Bibles are everywhere. That is crazy. That is, and, and we're all literate, which is also historically crazy. Not very common, but here we are, like just deep in literacy and Bibles and all these other historical texts. Like we are... We are we have a, a great luxury to take advantage of all this to, to kind of locate ourselves. And so I think this should be a goal of us, and I think Chris has done a really good job, especially looking back at these lives of the saints in the past, because that's part of our heritage. That's our family. That's kin, right? So to kind of bring that uh, a little closer to home and where we are, this, that gigantic abstract historical thing, is, is to talk about the incarnation. There is the incarnation, which is Jesus, Right, which is kind of the fundamental Christian thing, incarnation, meaning God breaks into history as an individual um, in a specific time and place. And one thing we consider is God could have done it any number of ways, right? That's, uh, that was probably his prerogative. So he could have, what he could have done was send thousands of messiahs to every given people in every part of the world at any given time. If he wanted to, he'd be like, I'm just going to give a messiah for every person and every, and it could have been thousands and thousands of messiahs if he wanted to, and we would have had to reckon with it, okay, well, this is easy because he gets us, right? But instead, it was one person and one time to one people, right? So he incarnated. So that's something that we have in common, <laughs> is, the, is the particular, a particular person in a particular time, just like we are. So we're incarnate right now in this community, in this time and place, and part of how we're owned by our incarnation or own our incarnation is through the mission and vision that we have in this community because we, we're working on having these common, these common goals, a common horizon, a common place that we're standing and looking from and seeing the same things together the same way Jesus and the disciples were. They, you know, it's in Second Temple Judaism in you know, Palestine. There's the temple. That, that was their horizon. We don't have that horizon, but we as a group who believe in that person share this horizon, right? So we, I just don't want to take anything for granted that this is, these are things that we have in common. So on one hand, we have a cultural heritage that we're drawing from, so we're not lost in the din of history. And on the other hand, we have a future that we're trying to look towards to see how it fits into this arc. And we are also in charge of molding that history. Like we're co-creators with God, right? Like if you will obey me, I will bless you and we'll do this thing together, right? That's kind of the idea. So if we keep, our, if we keep the long view in mind and we keep the idea of who we are as a people in mind, we'll be much less likely, I would suggest, to um, have our identity wrapped up in differentiation. What I mean by that, as a fancy way of saying, we won't decide kind of who we are based on who we aren't. We're not like that church down there who sprinkles, right? We're not like a church that celebrates on this day or whatever, who understands the scriptures to mean that we are or are not responsible for the initiation of salvation, right? All of those things are for people who don't have a grasp of who they are as a people trying to do what's in front of them to do good. Instead, it's just like, it's an easy way out. Oh, we're not like them. That's so easy, right? Because you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is talk. All you have to do is think. It's super, super easy. 
So let's make this a little bit more particular. I want to look at some scriptures and see how they apply to where we are, what we're shooting for, to be inspiring, to be challenging, to be terrible. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Keep the mitzvot, as I like to say. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, then you will have your treasure in heaven, then come follow me which sounds like a prerequisite. Which is, you know what I mean? Like he's basically saying, if you do all this t- stuff that no one could, could do, then you can come follow me. Be like, oh, well then what, what's happening in the meantime? If you don't do that, you can hear me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Anybody ever had a problem with that passage? Uh, Camel through the eye of a needle? You're like, yeah, that does seem impossible, but that's a very bizarre metaphor, right? Um, So some people have said that the eye of the needle was a narrow gate in Jerusalem, and it was so narrow, in fact, you couldn't get a camel through there, and your camel might be your pack animal that had all your stuff, so you'd have to leave the camel to go into Jerusalem. I'll offer this just because I think it's interesting. So in Greek, camel is camelos, and rope or cable is camillo, so it's just the difference between an E and epsilon and an I and an iota. So if it was supposed to be that and it was like written down or trans- translated wrong at some point, it would have been rope, which to me makes a little bit more sense because a rope is like a thread, but it can't go through the eye of the needle because it's too thick, right? Now, does this matter? Absolutely not. It does not change the meaning at all, but some people like digging around in this language stuff in the Bible. It's pretty interesting, right? So I just thought I'd give you a tidbit just to... I thought it was interesting, right? I didn't know what to do with it other than I like, uh, I like interesting stuff in the Bible, so I thought you might too. So, um, where am I here? When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you! Exclamation mark. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So I'd like to point out, before we move on here, that Jesus ends by telling the apostles at the end of days, they will be sitting on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Judging being like, they used to have judges before a king, like the, Ju- the Supreme Court basically ran the country, so they will be doing that, presumably in the New Jerusalem. Um, so it's still an Israel-centric vision in God's history to Jesus. Like, you guys, at the end of the day, will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So I think that needs to be understood for us because we're not part of any of the tribes of Israel, sort of. But Paul, like the whole Acts thing that we work through, which I think is super complicated and super important, Paul says the Gentiles are adopted into Israel, that they are brought into the commonwealth of Israel and that they are grafted into Israel, um, but still not... Israel, not in that sense, in the genealogy, but Paul tries to reckon with it his whole, you know, in his whole writing career that we have access to, and I think it's super important because Jesus at this point is saying, at the end, there's the 12 tribes of Israel, and the people that follow me will be there, and I feel like we should, we should reckon with that. Uh, and if I don't get uh, excommunicated, and if I ever get uh, invited back to speak, I'd love to try to flesh that out. 
Um, because it's part of, like, if, if we're in, why are we in? The New Covenant, probably? Does that seem fair? Where's the New Covenant text located? Who knows? Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. You got an extra jewel in that crown, brother. So here it is. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put their law, or put my law, my Torah, in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Who thinks that the new covenant text in Jeremiah 31 has to do with us, the believers? It's good. That's true. I think it's true. <laughs> I think you wanted to raise your hands. Uh, and by a show of hands, who also read what I just read and said that it's to the household of Israel and Judah, right? Seems maybe contradictory. Probably, maybe we didn't grasp, maybe that has to do with leaning into uh, understanding our cultural heritage, I would, I would just suggest, because I think they're both true. I don't think God's trying to play games. I think he's got a plan to make sure everybody saved and he picked a group of people to do it and gave them a Messiah so that we could all have access to God. I think that's important. So the, these are some of the texts uh, that Chris preached on from Acts. Acts 2, the Pentecostal Bible. Um, uh, to talk about believers throwing their lot in with the advancement of the kingdom of God. So let's see what comes of this. I'll try to roll through it since we, we kind of just went over it recently. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. And then in chapter 4, all the believers were in uh, one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Come on. Second part. So we got the past, now we got the, f- the present, where we are looking at the future. So I thought as- aspiration would be a great way to consider that. Because if we know who we are and we know where we come from, we know what we're shooting towards, we should aspire to be beyond where we currently are, both as like individuals and as a community, right? We shouldn't be like, you know, I think this is good. Like, you probably don't even need to preach anymore. I think we got it. Like, we're, we've hit it, right? So we want to know what the high goals are that we want to achieve as individuals and as a community. And so what we notice, for example, in the previous scriptures with the rich young ruler in the Acts 2 and 4 passage, passages is an abandonment of personal wealth and property for the sake of the kingdom of God. So by a show of hands, how many people, after Chris's sermon on giving to the church, went out and sold all they had and laid it at his feet other than me? Right. That's good. I gotta thank you. Whew. Okay. <laughs> but the previous scriptures seem clear that Jesus is recommending it and the, and the, and the apostles actually did it as a representative of here's what it looks like to give all for the advancement of the kingdom of God. So this should be uneasy for us, right? I think it makes me uneasy. That's the reason I put it in there because I'm like, usually, if I, it, how do I know that God's trying to show me something? I don't like it very much, but I'm pretty sure it's close to true. And so that usually gives me an idea that I'm like, okay, okay, okay. 
I'll reckon with it. I don't know how yet. But it means we have something to shoot for. So what's behind it? A willingness to abandon it all for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Seems good to me and the Holy Spirit, right? <laughs> so we're at a place right now, and probably will be, where, where we are in our lives, individuals and as a community, are not equal to that to which we aspire. Right? Great. But we're still aspiring. We don't just be like, whatever, I guess this is what it is, and this is, this is life, and I'll deal with it. No, you've got to aspire. Why? Because you're like, I, I, I believe in this. This is good. This is what God, you know, this is the vision of God for a people and for us. Like, it is meant to be good, right? So we have these aspirations. That means we have an opportunity to grow. We have an opportunity to be discipled. All these things are opportunity for potential. You think, man, if you were like a player in like, a, like an NBA uh, game, not that I play one on my phone all the time, but it would be like you're, you're like, oh, I'm rated a 64. You could be like, man, I'm terrible. You'd be like, I've got 36 more points I can get. It can get better. This is great. I got all sorts of room for potential, you know. And I got a master who's like teaching me all the things there are. It's not like we don't have Jesus or the teachings or the scripture or or, or the body to like be. A, we have all these things. So the aspirations should be challenging. They should be difficult, but they should be inspiring, right? So as far as I can tell, a culture of a community and the community itself relies on individuals, right? So that's why we're here. We have these personal aspirations, like what do we want to do with our family, with our jobs, like what are we, what are we doing? We want to be better, right? And hopefully as time goes on in terms of our culture, our aspirations will hopefully like integrate with the vision and mission of who we are as a people. If we really think this is important, like in, in short, we hope to be little Christs, right? Christian, little Christ. We want to be more generous, loving, kind, just, merciful, all the things we see Jesus espousing, right? The fruits of the Spirit. And when we work together as a community of faith, we should see these goals and aspirations lived out within a larger community, which is going to be Wellsville. That's where we will be incarnate, right? So we need to be social agents for the advancement of the kingdom of God, which means if we accept it as a kingdom, a kingdom, it's got policies. So we've got to execute those policies, and we should be able to see the advancement of justice and mercy in ourselves, in the community and in the larger community because that's what policies are supposed to do, right? If you have good policies and they're done well, if you own a business, if you're in local government or larger government and you have good policies that work well, you're like, hey, these are great, you know? That's what, but the, and so that's what we should see in the kingdom within us and within the larger community. So I have one more text. This is my, probably my favorite parable. I was going to fit it in here no matter what he asked me to preach on maybe. Because I think there's so much to it. It's, it's just, it's absolutely beautiful, the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law, an expert in the Torah, stood up to test Jesus' teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? What is written in the Torah? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Hmm, that's good. That's good. He's probably got a good heart, right? I, I recognize it. I feel it. Uh, so in reply, Jesus is like, Instead of me answering you, let me give you this roundabout way of uh, showing you stuff, because that's one of my actual favorite parts of Jesus, is he's like, No, 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 I'm not going to give you an answer. You've got you to work for this. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by the other side. 
But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii to give it to the innkeeper and said, Look after him, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay, the takeaway. So I could, God, seriously, sermons here that I'd love to, but I'm just going to distill it down and, you know, you're taking notes. These are all good things. First thing, Jesus asked, what does the Torah say? How do you read it? So the guy asks maybe the most important question a human being can ask, right? In one way or another, he forms it, what must I do to inherit in life? What is the most important thing there is in the entire world? Is basically what he's asking, him, right? Whether he's testing him. Some people read that testing as like trapping, but I don't think that's necessarily right. If you are, if you believe that a teacher is very smart, you might test them by giving them a. Uh, oh, I might have. Oh, good. It's going to be lost. They're going to be like, I wonder what he said. All the people that were listening, they're like, I've got to know. I don't know how this actually fits in there. We're just going to. Uh, um, so he might not be testing him in the bad way trying to trap him. He's probably like, all right, I'd be very interested to hear how this conversation will go, right? And Jesus asks him, well, what does the policy manual say, right? Like, how do you read it? And that tells me a few things. Number one, apparently the answer to the question about eternal life is in the Torah because that's where Jesus points to. And number two, there's a difference simply between the words on the page and how you read them. Hmm? So this guy is an expert of the law, it says, right? A lawyer. So he could be like the equivalent of like somebody who would become a Supreme Court justice, right? He understands the law. So he says, how do you read it? How do you interpret it? And the expert says, you know, love God, love your neighbor. And Jesus affirms this. And he's like, yeah, you got it. That's what it's about. You have to read the law this way or else, uh, yeah, you're not going to get eternal life. If you're just trying to like cut your, t- your, your uh, mint and cumin into tenths to give as an offering and that's what you think obeying the law is. You're like, what does Jesus say? He's like, you're straining a gnat and swallowing a camel, right? The point is not to swallow a camel. I, that wasn't written down. All right, so... Um, number two, Jesus is showing that it's wrong-headed to determine who qualifies for love and mercy. I don't really know how to sum that up, but I, I think you roughly get it, right? He, doesn't, he wants to know who he doesn't have to be merciful to. Right? He wants to know who the other is. They were like, certainly not that guy, right? He's just going to spend it on booze, anyways, to put it in our, right? That's why I'd like, I'm like, I'm just going to look at the stoplight so I don't have to give to that guy because I know I'm supposed to, but I got to just turn green and then I'm, the ethical dilemma's over. So, for instance, so everybody does. If they're in need, he's saying, you're not trying to find out who your neighbor is. You're trying to find out to whom you need to be a neighbor. You're the neighbor. You're not looking for who the neighbor is. You're the neighbor, right? And maybe this should have been too, but whatever. Uh, he shows the imperative of right action having priority over right thought. So in fancy language, if you want, uh, he prefers orthopraxy over orthodoxy, right? He is saying, like uh, his brother, James says in chapter 1 of his letter, anyone who hears the word but does not do it is like a man who looks in the mirror and after he goes, he, does, he forgets what he looks like. Right? And he's highlighting this, obviously, because who are the other two characters in the story? 
a priest and a Levite, right? So a guy's beaten up on the side of the road. Chris walks by him, right? This is a when we're talking about we're talking about guys that are getting 100 out of 100 on their theology tests, right? <laughs> priest and a Levite. And bartender says, what, is this a joke? <laughs> All right. So, so, because they ignored what was required in the moment, they were not right. It doesn't matter what you think. The man asked, what ought I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus ends the whole, okay, long-winded story. Jesus just said, just tell me what to do, right? He gives him the whole story, and then he says, go and do likewise. He doesn't say, go and believe likewise. Go and think likewise. The priest and the Levite were actually right, because despite not doing anything, they at least have better thoughts than the Samaritan. Didn't say that, right? So he's pointing out the doing the right thing is the important thing. So if Chris passes by him and I pass by him and a, and a you know, Muslim cleric takes care of him, the Muslim cleric is right, according to Jesus. That should make us uneasy, right? Because you're like, you can't be right before God because he's an idolater or whatever the thing is, right? It's, that's, the, that's the whole point of the story. He's supposed to make him uncomfortable. He makes him so uncomfortable when he asks who did the right thing, the man couldn't even say the Samaritan. He said the one who was merciful. I, he can't even say the Samaritan was right because they don't like Samaritans. They're heretics. They worship in high places. They're half-breeds. You know, there's a racial dynamic there. They do not like them. They are not of sound doctrine. But he did the right thing. That's why Jesus picked it. But that leads to the fourth point. And pl- ah, here, we'll get fancy here too. Let me take a sip of water before I start trying to speak Hebrew. Kal v'chomer. Kal v'chomer. you got to get the ch. V'chomer. means light to heavy. Or as Jesus often says, and it's throughout Scripture, how much more? It means if you can figure out the thing in the small case, you can see how it applies in a much more, a bigger case or a more complex case. So he says, uh, heals the man on the Sabbath, right? He's in the synagogue and the, and the Pharisees don't like that he's getting popped. He's like, well, is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he's like, come on. If you had a sheep that fell in the pit on the Sabbath, who wouldn't go save the sheep? Call the chomer a human life than a sheep. Is what he says. How much more is a human life than a sheep. The reason I say it's implied, he doesn't say how much more in the story, but it's obvious because it's a priest and a Levite. What he, and maybe he did another story, maybe it wasn't written down, but I, could just, I can hear it, right? Because he's, he's, he is a how much moreist, right? <laughs> the the Jesusian way. He would be like, how much more if the priest and the Levite did it because they knew what they were supposed to do. And they're the ones that are supposed to be representing the kingdom of God. So how much more the person that's representing, wearing the badge, being a witness how much more for them to do the right thing, they should know better. Right? Yes, the Samaritan is right. That's what's supposed to be uncomfortable, but how much more if you do it because you're the one bearing my name. Right? So that's why I think that that's implied and important. And you get to learn a cool... It's a rabbinical interpretive tool. It's older than Jesus. Yeah, he obviously loves it. Okay. So this is cool. And then I'll be done with the introduction and we can really get into it. (laughs) All right, so the personal attitude and work should lead way to a bigger structural change. I never really know how to like word these like small titles. That's why they're a little bit awkward. But the point is, is that the individual took care of the individual, right? But we're talking about uh, what does it mean to be a community and what is our culture? So here's, here's a parable you got a big pothole on your street, right? And one day while you're out there, somebody's driving and they don't see it, and wham, they hit the pothole, right? And they get a flat tire, so they pull off to the side. 
right? And a priest and a Levite walk by. And you're like, oh, God, this has to be you. This is a test, right? Because a priest and a Levite just walked down my street. So you go out there and you help the guy, you know, jack up his car and fix his tire. Or maybe he needs to get a tow truck, so you bring him in and so he's warm because it's 20 degrees outside and you bring him in and have some coffee or whatever. Boom, you totally learned and did what Jesus was teaching in the Good Samaritan, right? Like you would tell that story and be like, that was straight up biblical what I did today. That was awesome, right? And then the next day, somebody drives down and hits that pothole. Wham! And you're like, okay, well, I mean, I know this is right. That felt good. Okay, I'll go out and do that. And every day, somebody hits a pothole in that road, right? Aha! Oh, well, boy, this guy's getting ahead of me, right? This guy read my sermon, right? So eventually you might call the city and be like, hey, real quick, there's a pothole that no one sees and everybody keeps damaging their car in there. And the city goes, uh, we'll send somebody out. And then four months later, they send somebody out and they fix that pothole, right? And nobody is having their car wrecked anymore. That was a just good thing to do, right? So as a community, maybe, you have a responsibility to fix these larger issues. So we go back to the Acts 2 and 4 thing where everybody ends up sharing. They give the end... The big, and no one was in need. But it probably started out is that one individual member of that community was broke and had to pay the electric bill. I know that's anachronistic. But, and then the other guy who's got some means was like, here, I'll help you out. And that was the right thing to do. They Samaritan wrote it, right? And then it happens over and over again. They say, how about this? Like, we're all in and we believe this is of God. We're going to sell everything so that no one's in need. So they fix the structural problem. They're now nobody's asking for that. The pothole was filled in. So you dealt with a larger systemic problem rather than dealing with what I would call ad hoc problems. Not that you shouldn't, but just saying once you get to the point where you as a community, you got, we got force as a group of people, right? Come on, that's why we're going to Wellsville, right? <laughs> Come on. So here we go. Let's, let's check this out. So Dr. Martin Luther King preached on, on uh, the Good Samaritan. And that's probably why I love it, because his take was just dynamite, I would say. So, um, so this is just the part that's like, is, I love it. So he says, A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act. One day... We must come to see that the whole Jericho road must be transformed. That pothole has got to be filled in. So that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. Isn't that solid? That is solid. I love it. So here's the response. Here's the wrap everything up. So where did we start two and a half hours ago? We... In terms of the, the culture, we're going back to our past, looking how we got here, who we are ba- based on where we came from, right? Understanding the arc of God's narrative so we're not lost in the din of history. And then we have aspirations, goals that we can shoot for. So I give extreme examples, sell everything, or maybe we could have gone with like pick up your cross because you're going to be crucified sort of thing. That's an extreme example. But that's not the point. The point is we have something to consistently shoot for because we, we have somebody who showed us what we ought to be doing, right? There's no end point where we win the church game is what I'm trying to say. But the last part is what I want our response to be. We're about to move into Wellsville and no one knows anything about us. And as we engage, they're going to start forming a stereotype about us. Is it going to be they're stingy, they're reclusive, they're judgy? Is it going to be they're kind, they're generous, they're supportive? We are in the the fill-in-the-blank space right now, right? That's exciting to me. I love blank pages. It's It's the first impression, right? You don't have to overcome a bad 
first impression seven times or whatever that statistic is. We have the opportunity right now, it's before us, and we shouldn't take it for granted. We have this option. This is part of how our culture is expressed to these people that we've, we've, we're about to go to, right? And so one aspect of that might be learning what that community is like. So who knows like the top few problems of people and families in Wellsville? Is it opioids, meth, divorce, joblessness, homelessness? I have no clue, right? But whatever those ailments are, we probably have a responsibility based on all the stuff that you know, I've been talking about and, and who Jesus has been and what that the apostles have taught, all the stuff we have in this book, to probably be a blessing to that community, I would reckon, right? So I think if we get the chance to find that out, and we have an idea, like a, not a super solid theological doctrine, we're here and this is who we are, but I'm saying like we're feeling out what it is we want to do. As we go there, we get a chance to create our own stereotype. So that's, that's what I would say in response. Is think about how you want to be viewed by people that you haven't met yet, because that's what we're about to go into.